immediately. People need food now. The number of acutely food insecure people has skyrocketed over the last two years. So there is a third of a billion people. That's basically the population of the United States of America, which is acutely food insecure. Now is the time to turn rage into action. Every fraction of the degree matters. Every voice can make a difference and every second counts. I wanted to panic. I wanted to act as if the house was on fire. Because it is. From the pandemic to climate change, going it alone, it's simply not an option. For those who have eyes to see, for those who have ears to listen, and for those who have a heart to feel, 1.5 is what we need to survive. Welcome to the first episode of our podcast, Accelerating Climate Solutions. In this podcast, we set out to unearth the hard topics at the heart of the debate about the climate crisis. And we also try to dig a bit deeper into what's holding us back, that those solutions are actually taking root. Bringing together a diversity of speakers, we tackle everything from policy to finance, apathy to stories of hope and action. As you know, the clock is ticking. There are only eight years left to implement the UN Sustainable Development Goals, the so-called 2030 Agenda. And there's now only a 50-50 chance that the world will surpass a critical threshold of 1.5 degrees Celsius of global warming in the next five years. I'm here with Ruth Richardson from the Global Alliance for the Future of Food. Ruth. With over three and a half billion people living on the front line of the worst of climate change and often the most vulnerable among us, we must do more. The window of action to reach the goals of the Paris Climate Agreement is closing faster. All around the world, thousands of people are taking action to tackle climate change. Yet despite this, the way forward is not always clear. That's what this podcast is unraveling the opportunities and the tensions and divergences at the heart of the solutions that we know exist. Together, the Foundation's Platform F20 and the Global Alliance for the Future of Food, we are bringing together thinkers from across the political sphere, from economies, from companies or from the social spectrum to discuss and to debate these hot topics and to discuss what really is holding us back to take action or what would be needed to be pushed forward. The solutions that will deliver a healthy, equitable and a resilient planet for all. I'm Stefan Schurig from the Foundation's Platform F20 and I'm thrilled, I'm really thrilled to co-host this series with you, Ruth Richardson of the Global Alliance for the Future of Food. I believe through this podcast, we will explore the different angles of climate clashes and where the conflicts are and where we find common ground and shared pathways into the future. It won't be easy, we know that, but we believe bringing people together in dialogue is actually a very powerful way to build awareness, to build trust amongst ourselves and more importantly, to drive systems change. Ruth, you are the Executive Director of the Global Alliance for the Future of Food, a strategic alliance of philanthropic foundations collaborating on bold action across the planet to transform food systems and their impacts on climate change and food security. 
Well, doing what you're doing, actually, I always wondered what motivates you. Thanks, Stefan. And I'm thrilled to be here with you, helping to co-moderate this podcast. So what motivates me? Well, specifically to food systems, it's a recognition that the industrial food system causes so many negative impacts in the world right now. Climate change, health pandemics, hunger, migration, even conflict. And that food systems are such a brilliant solution to a brighter future if we can work with them to sequester carbon, nourish communities, employ people fairly, and so on. At a higher level, Stefan, it's a belief that we as humanity can do better, have done better, guided by principles like decency, fairness, love. Some say, in fact, that these principles or values are the only things that get us through times of disruption and upheaval. The Global Alliance is, in fact, guided each and every day by a set of principles that we strive for. Principles such as equity, diversity, resilience, and health. I'm often known to quote my favorite poets and authors, and it makes me think of a quote from Barbara Kingsolver, an American novelist, who said to a similar question, quote, what I want is so simple, I almost can't say it. Elementary kindness, enough to eat, enough to go around, the possibility that kids might one day grow up to be neither the destroyers nor the destroyed. That's about it. Sometimes it's that simple. Stefan, you have co-founded a platform of foundations and philanthropic organizations advocating for the implementation of the Paris Climate Agreement and the Sustainable Development Goals. Why do you address the G20? And why do you think philanthropy is uniquely placed to contribute to an inclusive and climate-safe society that meets the needs of current and future generations while leaving no one behind? Rose, happy to answer that. But before I need to say... Your answer to my initial question of what motivates you actually resonates a lot with what I'm thinking and what I what I feel. Sometimes it really is that simple, that ultimately we don't want to belong to the destroyers nor to the destroyed, and we just want to have, you know, the, a fair chance for a happy life and for a healthy life. And I think this was just an excellent, very inspirational answer. So thank you for that. In terms of why the Foundations Platform of 20 thought about the role that philanthropy and foundations can play, I would say there's three things that make the role of the foundations unique. They have a lot of flexibility in terms of their funding and in terms of the themes that they choose where they invest. They have a lot of funding or capital that they can invest in one direction or in any other direction, and they have a political weight. You wouldn't believe how influential some of those foundations that nobody had ever heard of in few countries are, how important they are and how important their voice is in terms of taking a political stand. So what we try to do with the foundations platform is we invite foundations to join the platform and by joining they are giving us the mandate to translate in a way their political weight to the decision-making vectors within the G20 or within the G7 countries in terms of climate and in terms of sustainable development. So that is one direction. But there's a way back. It also applies for the foundation themselves. If they start to finger point at the politicians and say, you know, you must do this or that. Of course, they also look into the mirror and say, hey, what are we doing with our capital? How are we using our programs? How can we encourage our grantees? 
to move into that directions and to develop those solutions. So what we try with F20 is basically inviting foundations and philanthropic organizations to take a political stand, to question their own programs and to see how they can translate climate action into their own programs and also encouraging them to reconsider all their investments with the foundation's capital into directions that are more sustainable and not damaging the climate. This is a podcast, Ruth, about solutions. So what gives you hope about the future? Well, I really appreciate your answer to my question. And I agree that it's such a an important and strategic role for foundations. And I really love that you've pointed inside and outside what foundations can do externally, but what they can also do internally. That gives me hope. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's just so much going on that gives me hope, Stefan, should give all of us hope. Uh, there's this newsletter called Future Crunch. I don't know if you've seen it, but their last issue just came out on the 16th of May. And let me just give you two headlines, both in my backyard here in Canada, out of dozens of good news stories. First, Quebec has become the first jurisdiction in the world to explicitly ban oil and gas development in its territory. It's a pretty radical move. Canada is among the top five oil producers worldwide, and the new law ends all petroleum exploration and production, as well as the public financing of those activities in Quebec. Second, the Magpie River in Quebec has been granted legal personhood as the rights of nature movement gains global momentum. The rights were advocated by the Innu First Nation people to combat the impact of dams and include the right to flow, the right to maintain biodiversity, the right to be pollution-free, and the right to sue. This, along with stories about renewables, about wildlife crossings, about the eradication of diseases and LGBTQ rights and decline in poverty. Now, alongside this, we all know, we all feel, as you said earlier, so much bad news, which is real. But it takes over, doesn't it? Because the bad news gets so much play and exposure. At the Global Alliance, we did our own future crunch of sorts called Beacons of Hope. We've just released the latest cohort this week on financing, showcasing six initiatives that are leading the way in innovative, creative, and effective food systems transformation finance. I encourage all of our listeners to go to the Global Alliance website to find it. So just one story from the report. Did you know that Copenhagen set an ambitious goal as part of its broader sustainability targets to have organic products compose 90% of all food purchased and served in public kitchens by 2015, and for that conversion to happen entirely within existing budgets? It's incredible. One municipal government has not only pioneered a comprehensive food strategy, but is actively using public spending to stimulate the market for seasonal, sustainably produced food and nutritious meals. These stories, these people are the ones that give me hope. Now, Stefan, you and I have talked and I know you too are hopeful. I am. So in your opinion, <laughs> why is it not too late to take climate action? Probably it's a matter of personal attitude that I don't match well with the question whether something is too late or too early or so. I think it's just if the time is right, you just get things done. And um, 
what would be the consequences if you would say, well, you know, it's too late? Would you just sit down and say, okay, the rest of my life is just, you know, spending time with thinking about things being too late? So I don't match with this uh, attitude. But just to add a few or at least one positive example, when I started working on renewable energy, that I know I sound very old now, Ruth, but when I started working in renewables or in renewable energy here in Germany, it was like 25 years back. And everyone told us that renewable energy would never be more than 5% in the electricity grid or so. It's basically impossible. Engineers told us that, but more so politicians and even more so energy companies who had no interest to integrate renewable energy into their grid. What they actually said is, if you add more than 5% of renewable electricity into the grid, you would experience massive blackouts in a country of almost 90 million people with a lot of industry here and, you know, a very important export nation. So, you know, a blackout would be really a nightmare. We are now 20 years later, we are now at almost 50% of renewable electricity in the grid. And of course it was possible. Of course we never experienced such a massive blackout and it was only a method of basically adapting to what is needed because there was a political will to develop renewables because of the governmental constitution to say, yes, we need those renewables. So I think this to me is always a good example that even in countries like Germany, where there's a lot of heavy industry also sitting, you can actually do that change. And 20 years back or those 25 years back, people also said it's probably already too late. If we would have heard on what would be too late or not, we wouldn't have done anything. So now we actually at least have this option for a renewable electricity powered energy market. So there are plenty of those suggestions and plenty of those examples. The question still to me remains, and I'm putting that question to you, I'm putting you on the spot now, Ruth, is what is it that creates that change? What are the elements that ultimately really sort of make that change happen. I know in the German case, it was the definite political will to say, no, we want to develop renewables. We just go there. We don't We don't care what the industry says ultimately. In fact, they did care for way too long, but ultimately they pushed it. So the question to you is, what are those elements that really sort of accelerate a system transformation? Thanks, Stefan. I think you know, having worked on energy in Germany, which has really led the way in terms of energy transformation, that it's a system. It's a whole system that you got to move. And yes, political will is an absolutely central part of that. But there's so much more to a system than just politics and politicians. I'm a really good student of the late, great Danella Meadows, who was a deep systems thinker. And she wrote this beautiful article called Dancing with Systems. Okay. I would encourage everybody to find it and read it. It's a beautiful piece. And I won't go over her whole approach, but there are some really critical steps from my perspective. First, we have to listen to the system. We have to understand it. We have to see how it behaves. We have to watch it. And we have to hear its beat. Secondly, we have to locate responsibility within the system. An example is the polluter pays principle that requires those who create environmental damage to pay for the cleanup. That's responsibility in the system. And I think in the case of Germany and energy, you guys were fantastic at, at locating responsibility in that system to make the change you needed. The third thing is we have to pay attention to what's important and not just what's quantifiable. Stefan, we talk a lot about metrics and science-based targets in our line of work. 
some of which is fine. But take COVID as an example. The impacts of COVID will be measured by GDP, hospital visits, deaths, and other other things that we can easily measure, right? But are we talking about what is equally important and unquantifiable? Human connection, community solidarity, the importance of actually being able to go outside and be nurtured by nature. Fourth, we have to go for the good of the whole, which means the whole system, not just companies, not just governments, not those who are more visible, but everyone. And this means deeply challenging the status quo and the deep-rooted behaviors and practices and societal norms, not to mention power and biases and vested interests. Finally, we have to acknowledge, celebrate even, complexity and the need for learning and adapting. Systems change is dynamic. It takes time. And above all, it takes trust. So this requires trying to get to the root of why and where there is a lack of consensus and engage in a dialogue about the legitimate questions that are holding back action. There's so much more to say on systems change, (laughs) uh, but let's bring someone else into the discussion. This is a good moment to remind listeners that we're focusing this podcast on the policy and political context of climate solutions, setting our discussions against the backdrop of what's happening in the world today, and in the recognition that ultimately, we know that any climate solutions or pathways to action, as they always do, will vary by country, sector, and organization. So with that, Let's welcome our first guest. We are extremely happy to discuss these questions today with Dr. Martin Frick, Director, Global Office, Berlin of the World Food Programme. Before Martin took over as head of the WFP Berlin office in November 2021, he led the operational preparation of the 2022nd Food Systems Summit of the UN Secretary General. Previously, he served as Senior Director of UN Climate Change, working on climate action and implementation of the Paris Climate Agreement. Leading the programmatic work of Kofi Annan's Global Humanitarian Forum in the year 2000, he was at the heart of developing the narrative of climate justice and promoting it ever since. He was also Climate Director of the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations. Martin holds a doctorate in law. Martin, you're truly an expert in the interface of development, climate and food. We are, again, very pleased to have you here in the studio in Berlin for our podcast. Before we dive into the discussion on the subject of the legacy of the G7 and what the G7 countries can do, you get the first question, and you may have wondered what the red button on this table would mean. And I tell you, that's the red button that we ask every guest in our podcast to press. But just, of course, as an idea, because the red button means that you could change one thing in politics, in global politics, for the better. And the question is, if you press that button, it happens. What would it be? Well, (laughs) I think it would be that every farmer on this planet would be treated as a crucial person to keep our global ecosystem working and would be remunerated accordingly. Wow, that's hopefully going to happen if we press this button. But (laughs) if we press this button and it doesn't happen, which I guess can of course be a scenario, what do you think, what holds it back? Well, it's... (laughs) 
basically the true cost of food or the true yeah. cost of bad food. I think ever so often we just don't price in the externalities and they are humongous if you think about it. Well, that will make me think a bit further about, I think it's a great answer. Thank you for that. So I keep the red button here for the time being. Now let's discuss briefly the role of the G7 in this year. Obviously, the G7 countries have a very heavy legacy when it comes to emissions. They are more or less carrying like 50% of the emissions um, that are in the atmosphere, creating almost one degree temperature increase already. And of course, emerging economies are following suit now step by step, but it is, of course, the G7 countries that still carry that legacy. And the world's so-called advanced economies will gather this year in the south of Germany, in Elmau, that's called a very tiny little village near Munich. And that's because Germany will have the presidency or does have the presidency of the G7 this year. And my first question would actually to you or would be to you, where do you see sort of the responsibility of the G7 in the context of the other Gs maybe in terms of climate action? Uh, and I have another uh, question to come right after, but just as a general entry to that discussion about the G7. From my viewpoint, the G7 has one pressing issue on the table, and that is an emerging global food crisis. And that emerging global food crisis is basically based on four Cs. It's conflict, it's climate, it's COVID, and now it's galloping costs. So my hope is that in addressing this food crisis, the G7 would also understand how closely related that crisis actually is A, to the impacts of climate change, and B, how much food systems, the way we produce, consume, and unfortunately waste food, can become a climate solution, and indeed maybe the most powerful climate solution there is. The Chancellor, in a recent interview, Chancellor Olaf Scholz from Germany said that, referring to the war against the Ukraine by Russia, said that this war must not lead us as the G7 to neglect our responsibility in the face of global challenges such as the global climate crisis and the pandemic. That's some two months ago. He probably would add the threat of a food crisis now because I see this now hitting the headlines in the newspaper as well, that this is a serious subject. But would you think that the G7 is actually having it in its hands to stop the threat of a global food crisis? Do they have the measures to really stop that or address that adequately? Well, it's a complex situation that is also asking for a very thoughtful, multidimensional answer. I think, for example, there is a feeling or a fear better in least developed countries that over the Ukraine war, Europe and particularly Germany would overlook the situation of some of the poorest countries on this planet. And the German chancellor just went to Africa to basically make the case that we did not forget you. But of course, if you look at these complex and interdependent situations, you're also seeing issues of climate justice. Now, on the Horn of Africa, for example, 
We are currently acutely concerned for 15 million people suffering under the worst drought in 40 years. Now, at the same time, the Horn of Africa in its entirety has contributed 0.05% of the global greenhouse gas emissions. So supporting there is not only to buffer the consequences of the Ukraine war, which you see in the food prices, it's also counteracting the consequences of climate change and showing solidarity to people who really didn't cause this issue. So that definitely would be something that you'd expect from the G7 to not distinguish between climate change, energy prices, food crisis and a war, but to actually highlight the interdependencies of these issues and uh, give justice or acknowledge that fact, but also, of course, to provide very concrete measures to address these. I just would like to know a bit more about what these measures would be. And Ruth, you just go after with your question. So in terms of these measures, When would you say, when you hear about the outcome of the G7 summit in Elmo end of June, when would you say this was really a good decision? If the G7 is addressing basically two interconnected issues, but different in the timeline, immediately people need food now. The number of acutely food insecure people has skyrocketed over the mm -hmm. last two years and it really hit a new high with the Ukraine war. So there is a third of a billion people. That's basically the population of the United States of America, which is acutely food insecure. We got to bring food to these people right now. And issues such as opening of Odessa as a significant port city in Ukraine are essential. Other issues such as keeping markets open, creating transparency in the markets are absolutely vital. But in the medium and long run, we have to change the global food system and we have to build resilient, localized and also nutritious food systems in the sub-Saharan Africa region without delay. So two things need to happen in parallel. Humanitarian aid right away, because otherwise people are starving, countries will slide into instability, and at the same time, not holding back with investments into small-scale farming and large-scale transformation of food systems. I'd love to jump in here because this is something that Martin and I have worked on together for a while. Martin, Indeed. hi, you and I um, worked together on the UN Food Systems Summit with an emphasis on systems. First, I'd love to just thank you for elevating farmers and true cost accounting to issues that are very near and dear to the heart of the Global Alliance and critically important I also want to thank you for raising the word complexity, because I think that's what this is. And maybe if we can just dig a little bit deeper into your answer, because I think the, the short-term need is obvious. It's not easy, but it's obvious. People need to be fed, and we need to ensure that hungry get the sustenance they need. What I want to ask a little bit more about is kind of the longer-term trajectory, and I think you pointed to that in terms of where we need to go particularly from a systems point of view, because we're really trying to embed the discussions in this podcast in systems thinking. I was struck by the recent meeting of the Committee on World Food Security, where we talked about all sorts of issues. I think you were on that call from the war to 
drought in Africa to the levels of hunger rising. I was struck because we keep talking about these in silos, but not together. We know that these are interconnected issues and we know there needs to be interconnected solutions. So I'm just wondering, given your experience being deputy of the UN Food Systems Summit and being exposed to millions, well, maybe not millions, but thousands of solutions, what do you think, like tangibly, what are some of the solutions that excite you most that are really transformative and that are very much systems-based? Women come to mind immediately. Most of the farmers in Sub-Sahara Africa are women farmers, and they are still not enjoying the same land rights as men. So women are an obvious solution. Now, in terms of applied technologies, if I may say, I think agroforestry holds great promise and helps restoring land. That's one topic, again, which is incredibly important to work on improving soils and improving soil fertility also means bringing carbon back on the ground. And then another solution is also managed grazing of cattle because many African cultures are based on pastoralists. And let me say that these systems are perfect in tune with nature and they can even help improve the soils of the areas where they are and they are adapted. And the third thing I would say is, and that's also true globally, to reduce the dependency of a globalized Western diet that is basically based on wheat and corn and rice in favor of a broader variety of native species of forgotten crops and just to build resilience by broaden the basis on which we stand for world nutrition. So Martin, I, I love those highlights. Women, agroforestry, soils, carbon, managed cattle grazing, a more diversified diet. What is the role of the G7 or the G20 in trying to advance those solutions? I think where we are globally is that we have all the evidence we need. We have all the evidence when it comes to climate change. I argue that after so many years of systematically spread doubt, climate change is now the best researched and the most certain policy field. We have on the other side hundreds and thousands of pilots and examples of things that actually work. We have to bring it to scale. And this is something that I would hope from the G7 and from the G20 to mobilize the massive investments needed, but also to create the legal frameworks that are needed. I mentioned 10-year security, one of the best products in my view of the Committee on World Food Security, managed approaches to the national, the regional and the global food system and elevating the topic as it's happening with the G7 that globally food systems and food security become an issue for the head of state which is the only place where you can tie in together the different ministries that need to work together in order to bring this systemic change that we need. The question of what the G7 can actually do about those points, those hugely important points that you just raised, is really, really important. And it reminds me a little bit of the discussion that Ruth and I had just um, a few minutes ago when it was about the credibility of political statements and 
that, you know, the knowledge or the notion that the price for not doing anything is still too low. It is still too cheap for uh, governments to not act on those crises that we are discussing here. So my question to you is, if we get all this into a communique that results of the G7 summit this year, how credible is such a communique? And do you think that's, you know, acknowledging the importance of food security, of resilience, of climate action is actually really leading then to change on the national, regional and local levels? I think it needs two things. One is a G7 initiative must not be just the firework in the night sky. It needs multi-year commitment. And I'm actually confident that the German G7 presidency will not drop the issue once the presidency goes over to the next country. That's one bit. The second bit is partnership. You can't mandate this top down. And I think there's a product that came out of the Food System Summit, which is the national pathways that have been discussed on a national level that are a very powerful instrument to bring different stakeholders together and create from the bottom up a common understanding and a common resolve to address these issues. So if we can bring that together, a G7 commitment underpinned by finance plus a bottom-up multi-stakeholder agreement on how to do it and do it collectively, which is so important, particularly for land restoration, that could be a winning formula. I could not more agree with you. Thank you for making that point. And just quoting again Germany's Chancellor Olaf Scholz, uh, he said, we need your independent expertise and your advice and indeed your constructive criticism. And he was referring to whom? To the civil society, hmm. to civil society networks like the Global Alliance for the Future of Food or the Foundation's Platform of 20. So the question then, and you mentioned partnerships, is uh, how can intersectional partnerships that involve civil society and business and politics really help to accelerate action. I mean, also beyond the G7 lines, have you ever seen like, you know, really successful partnerships where civil society played a crucial part in really implementing change or pushing forward change? Well, I think we see a lot of that in the climate world. If it wouldn't be for civil society constantly pushing, constantly asking questions, much less would be happening. Yeah. I think the role of civil society is really a difficult one because it is sort of the burden of going down to grassroots level and really make people's voices heard is a constant effort and it needs humility and it needs pragmatism and it's an incredible effort. I. I remember over two years of the Food System Summit, how very, very necessary, but at the same time, how incredibly difficult it was to really bring the voices of farmers to the meetings. And that is because these people are busy. They live in rural communities. They lack digital connectivity. And so civil society has a double role here to listen really to the ground and then communicate up and serve as this interface and constantly 
crown truth that what we are advocating for is actually really working on the ground. And this is something that adds to this incredible complexity. We just have so many farmers on the ground. But, you know, all these coalitions, including private sector and so on, we really need to be very careful and very mindful about whom we are talking to, if we mean the private sector, for example. Because sometimes it can be a fantastic idea to bring private sector in, sometimes not so much. So checking whom you're dealing with, getting the actors together, but asking critical questions, that is the catalytic role of civil society. I would definitely agree that the legroom that civil societies have in terms of identifying the real problems, listening more closer to what is really needed and then addressing the political arena with the requirements and with the needs, that there is more legroom than probably business has. However, sometimes I think, you know, speaking on behalf of a civil society perspective for more than 20 years now, I think sometimes it, you know, you really need to have some kind of hard links between what needs doing and what will be decided on the political level. And by definition, civil society organizations clearly don't have those hard links. So we still, you know, civil society organizations still require politicians that have a moral responsibility on, you know, deciding or um, ramping up political decisions in line with those needs by farmers, for example, what you said. But I pass over to you, Ruth, with the next question. Yeah, thanks. Um, really interesting discussion and very much enjoying to hear your perspective, Martin, not just from UN Food System Summit perspective, but I know you've spent years in the trenches of the UNFCCC as well. So you've got lots of experience to draw from. I was looking at a quote from the G7 that said, quote, global sustainable development with the 2030 agenda in mind is the basis for a just and better future for all. We therefore want to use our G7 presidency to drive forward international cooperation, first and foremost in climate, environmental, healthcare, and urban development policy. We intend to this end to strengthen, expand, and establish new partnerships on climate, energy, and development. This is also coupled with enhanced cooperation with the most vulnerable countries on adapting to climate change and the approach to climate-related loss and damage. So there's a lot in there, and you've talked about partnerships. What I want to elevate from this quote is vulnerable countries, because I think this is a different face of what you've just been talking about with civil society. It's similar, but it's different. So from your experience and your expertise, If you were the senior advisor to the G7 sitting around the table with them, <laughs> hmm. how would you advise them to enhance cooperation with the most vulnerable countries? Because we know they're on the sharp end of all of this and they need to be front and center in a meaningful way in the debate. So what would you advise? As always, cut the middleman. I think whenever the OECD countries are really listening and working with the most vulnerable countries, with the countries at the front lines of climate change, then progressive coalitions are possible. We need to be very careful who is speaking for whom in regional groups and where the true interest lies. So it is cumbersome to speak to so many countries. But Rich countries also entertain large diplomatic networks. And I think we are yet to mobilize all of this diplomatic power to really have an ongoing 
necessary and in-depth discussion around climate change issues. That's the first thing. The second thing is that, of course, you know, we are often talking to our own echo chamber about climate change and our concerns are 100% correct, but they express themselves in a different form in least developed countries. And that form is more often than not the form of food security, particularly these days. So I think we need to have a conversation with LDCs and saying, look, you know, we see how much you struggle. We want to help you building a food secure and resilient future. And that is only possible if we work together and join our forces to address climate change. Because if we don't, the situation will only get worse in your countries. And have, and I would close with that, um, have a discussion that is less around charity and becoming recipients of aid, but really much more about empowerment, about recognizing and honoring really the people who are the bottom billion and their ability to really bring positive change, to build up nature capital if they are empowered, if we have lasting partnerships, they last longer than a tenure of a specific government. Martin, can I ask you a personal question? Please. <laughs> Stefan and I were talking earlier just about what gives us hope, what uh, gets us out of bed in the morning and, you know, remaining committed to the cause. There's interesting new work being done on decision making under deep uncertainty. And having just experienced a pretty intense and significant event in my life, which was having a derecho, which I understand is a whole well, series of thunderstorms with hurricane and tornado-like winds between them come and devastate an island where I have a cottage. I now understand climate a little bit more viscerally than I did before. I understood the impacts intellectually, but I didn't understand them in my body. I didn't understand them in the cells of mm. my body in terms of the stress. And it just occurred to me that that's uh, insignificant compared to what some people are experiencing. And as I think about leaders who are trying to lead under deep uncertainty and incredibly stressful situations in countries where, you know, there are massive heat waves and they're too hot to even think. Hmm. What do you as a leader, as a decision maker, do to keep yourself going? What, what, what keeps the engines running? What keeps you hopeful? What keeps you committed to doing this work? That's a good question. I think it's two things. As you said, I spent many years in the UN climate process and boy, you know, this can be so deeply frustrating if you see this arcane process, endless negotiations where even insiders can't tell you what these negotiations is about. And then come young people to the street and suddenly things become more obvious and that's the first thing. I mean, I'm a father of three children. They have an incredible energy and such a deep understanding of the issue that we don't need to convince them. And the second thing is pure pragmatism. I think the biggest problem we had with the climate debate over all these years was that we always spoke about a future problem. And people are not good in solving future problems. But as it's hitting home now, and you just mentioned your example, we had just had in Germany a series of three tornadoes 
tornadoes in Germany. That's unheard of. And suddenly people feel, oh gosh, you know, this is not something I read in the papers. This is actually happening. And then things can happen really, really fast. Not I mean, to how, mention the heavy flood events uh, last year with absolutely. hundreds of people dying because of that heavy rainfalls for weeks in the same place, which flooded the entire villages. Indeed, and costed more than a hundred lives. Unbelievable. But also what I see now with the war of Russia against Ukraine, the resolve and the speed with which we are now finally trying to get more independent of oil and gas. So I, I believe in human creativity, really. I think people can solve the most wicked problems when they are pushed against the wall. And I think we are at this stage now where we are really pressed very hard for solutions very fast. And I just hope that we are still able to win this race against time. I can only say that I also believe in human creativity and doing this work for more than two decades now. That might sound weird, but I've been experiencing many years where I've been much less optimistic than these years because we have those momentum now where people are aware of climate, experience climate impacts, unfortunately, one should say, but that's actually the case. And you mentioned the kids and this at least, or the, the, the young generation, let's say, the generation Fridays for Future. I think, you know, one tribute though I would give to political processes is that if the Fridays for Future generation wouldn't be able to refer to the IPCC, yeah. they would be much less powerful than they are now because every second sentence that Greta and Luisa and others are saying in terms of climate is saying, we're just referring to science. Mm. We're just referring to the facts. We're just looking at the facts. Right. And I think that is really very, very important. And it is a result of some kind of long taking political processes <laughs> that we got the IPCC where it is now. So that at least bears mentioning. So closing this extremely insightful conversation And just turning our view back to the G7, then obviously climate action is not just ramping up the goals for renewable energy, be it for one that uh, F20 calls for for 70% renewable electricity by 2030 or for rather long-term targets like net zero and so on. But it is also about adaptation. It is really also about acknowledging that we have to deal with climate impacts no matter what we do now. And it is also, and what you said, Martin, the G7 should not look for fireworks in the night sky, but it is really for ensuring processes that result from meetings like we have in Elmo in a couple of days here in Germany that can really ensure that humanitarian help is actually being provided in the times of a threatening food crisis and that we also have those system-based changes, as you've referred to, be it from agroforestry, from women's land rights, from manage raising cattle or broadening the resilience of our forestry and of our agriculture or more diversified diets. Things like that also need to be ultimately addressed. 
unless you have any closing question, Bruce, I would say a big thank you to Martin for your time, actually for coming to the studio here and for sharing your thoughts. But over to you, Ruth. Do you have any additional thought or final comment? No, just to say, Martin, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you here and, you know, just to hear from you from many different vantage points um, that you have in your past um, that bring <laughs> you wisdom and knowledge uh, and insight in terms of um, where we need to go and how. And really appreciate you tackling my my personal question. And, and that really resonated with me just in terms of looking to the young people and also recognizing that we as a human species have done incredible things. We can do this. Mm. We just need to have the will and the focus to take on the challenge. So thank you. Well, thanks very much, Ruth. And if, if I can say one additional thing, I just came to mind many years ago, I was in very significant meeting with ministers and professors and everyone. And then there was question time and one lady stood up and said, my name is this and that. And I'm an educator. Pause. I'm educating my children about climate change. And there was standing ovations for this woman. And the, the point which I think is significant is that on every single level, there is no insignificant action, there is no insignificant discussion, because in the end, it's about the behemoth task of moving 7.7 billion people. So, you know, if that's any encouragement for anyone, anywhere, on any level, whatever you do matters, and it is the sum of all these things that is creating reality. If we don't change the climate will. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, it's um, unfortunately as simple as that. Yeah, yeah. Right. So many thanks for, as Stefan said, this very insightful discussion. Please, listeners, share your feedback on this episode via the platform you're listening on or join the conversation on Twitter at F20 Platform and at Future of Food Org, Instagram, F20 Platform and LinkedIn. We'd love to hear what the main takeaways are for you from this discussion. Thanks again. Thanks, everyone.